0: okay let's get this show on the road uh welcome everyone welcome to the uh, the plan forum on the future of mobility in partnership with bloomberg new energy finance who we're hugely grateful for for their support on this uh event i'm kevin McCullough. i'm um the chair for today i'm the founder of plan a product strategy consultancy down the road in clarkenwell um, and we also um published the magazine that you hopefully didn't sit on um, that was on your seat just now. Um, a, few, uh, a few words before we get stuck into the, the topic of the day, a few words on, on the format today. So um, and why we call it Plan Forum and not Plan Talks or Plan Pontificate or something. Um, we figured that you've got lots and lots of opportunities to pitch up to um, here. Um, people recycle, receive wisdom and general industry guff um, on all sorts of different uh, events these days. So what we thought we'd, we'd do is that we'd set up a debate uh, between people from quite different, that uh, approaching a hot topic from quite different perspectives, um, invite them along and invite lots of informed people along and really get a debate going. Um, and so we're, we're really going to be um, looking forward to your contributions um, from the floor later on as well. Um, now let me just give you a, a sense of how things are going to run. Um, I'll in a second I'll set things up with a few facts and stats. Um, I'll be followed by my colleague Debbie Nathan, who'll um, give you some headlines from a, a survey that we did for this event around people's attitudes to cars and the future of mobility. Then I'll invite the, the panel up. Uh, we'll have a um, we'll start off a a sort of chair debate amongst the panel. And then before we go out to the audience, um, Lars from um, PLP Architecture is going to give us a sneak advanced preview of a uh, quite an exciting uh, infrastructure, urban infrastructure concept that he's been working on. And then we'll, we'll go out for a Q&A and debate from the floor. Um, just in terms of... Um, few housekeeping points. There's no fire alarms um, planned for today, so if you do hear one, head for the exits. Um, <laughs> phones to silent or even off, please. Um, and let's, let's go. So let me set things up a little bit. So um, future mobility, looking at, at, at cars role in personal mobility in the city. And I think it's, it's worth remembering that there was a time when cars were just unalloyed goods. They were just sources of freedom, individuality, um, and aspiration. And just to give you a bit of a date stamp about when that was, it was around when yellow suits were where it was at, basically. Um, but since the 70s, I'd say, is there's been the tides changer, started to change around cars. Cars started to be seen more and more as, as problems. Um, so, you know, you had the oil crisis in, in the 70s, you had the start of uh, modern day environmentalism, you had the growing gridlock. And by the 80s, you had city authorities starting to trying to curtail car use in different ways. So, um, single, multi uh, lane, multi um, occupancy car lanes in the US, Athens, um, even and odd um, registration number systems, the congestion charge. And a whole rack of different um, sort of measures started to really curtail, squeeze the car a little bit out of cities. Um, you then had, uh, about five years ago, uh, people t- starting to talk about peak car. That, um, in, in the West, we'd hit peak car, you know, analogies with peak oil, um, where um, the sales were starting to drop off in, in, in Western markets. And then even more recently, we've had all the buzz around the sharing economy and all these alternatives to, to private car ownership like Uber or um, you know, Zipcar or, or DriveNow or what have you. Um, and then we've got this is a this is the map from the, the magazine um, where we look at um, quite there's quite an action zone, if you like, of um, experiments going on from the the kind of Uber, minicabs, to the e-bikes for the shorter journeys, to the various different models of, of car sharing, which we've been particularly looking at for the slightly longer journeys. But there's lots and lots of experimentation there between the private car ownership and, the, and say, public transport. Um, but despite what you read in the newspapers, um, car sales are actually at an all-time high in the UK and in the US. So what, what people mistook for peak car was actually the recession and people just um, not having so much cash to splash on cars. But actually, cars are actually at... There's never been so popular um, with ordinary people. And it's that, that's set to grow, according to Euromonitor, globally um, by, by quite some chalk. Cars are also the most popular in London, the most popular form of transport. You know, Basically, one in three journeys in London is by car. Um, most, the majority of London households have at least one car, um, so it's still very, very popular. Um, however, with that popularity comes problems, so uh, London is the UK's capital of gridlock, so 40% of gridlock in the UK is said to be in London, um, and it's getting worse, there's more and more time is being wasted sitting in, in, in traffic jams, um, and it's... and. If, if we keep, up, keep on going as is, um, with rising population, there's going to be a, another million and a half joining us apparently in the next 10, 15 years. And also, despite what you might read in the papers, um, young people still aspire to own cars, or at least most of them do. So this was a, a global study last year of um, six different nations where basically three out of four Gen Yers intended to have their own car, in the next five years. So it's not like um, the, ne- that the, the young generation are going to stop buying cars. And also, public transport isn't necessarily the answer, either. I think mean, It's worth noting that um, cars are a very, very popular form of transport in London. And we have a pretty good public transport system. Um, so people are still quite attached to their cars. Um, and that's underlined by um, what's known as the Tallinn experiment where I think it was 2014, Tallinn um, tried giving free public transport to all their citizens. And the effect was just 1.2% bump up in use of the public transport system, most of which came from not drivers, but people who would have normally walked but got on the, uh, the sort of tram or, or tube instead. So people um, I think I think this underlines um, how. Planners and policymakers tend to underestimate people's attachments to cars. And it's not a simple, people don't tend to run a simple spreadsheet cost-benefits analysis when it comes to cars. The the reason people hang on to their cars are more complex and more more human. And I think we'll we'll hear more about that later. So just to set up the debate, I think broadly there's kind of three routes that we can take if we're going to try and solve this. One uh, and that gets a lot of um, airtime is behaviour change, nudging, elbowing even people out of their cars by um, various mix of carrots and sticks. So, um, Gartner, for example, thinks that by 2020, in two years' time, two or three years' time, um, that there will be uh, people will be um, 10% of Londoners or uh, people from urban centres will ditch their private cars. Um, for kind of car sharing, on-demand mobility services, as they're called. Let, let's call them Uber or, or Drive now. Another option would be the sort of smart city vision, if you like, where um, cars become increasingly connected to each other, to um, urban infrastructure, um, and we squeeze more out of our existing road infrastructure through use of smart technology. And then I guess a third option is that we increase more capacity. We increase the road capacity, um, which um, would have to be mainly underground. Uh, Boris has recently announced a um, a feasibility study into um, various tunnels or fly-unders around uh, London. Uh, Crossrail 2 has has recently got semi-signed off um, by George Osmond. We could go for push for much bigger infrastructure solutions as well. So they and they're not mutually exclusive options that we could push we could pursue any number of them in, in parallel of course so that's kind of just the way we're kind of setting things up really and I would just like to um, invite my colleague Debbie Nathan up just to share some results of a survey we did for this that very much looks at that first option Debbie Hi everyone
1: Thank you Kevin um, so I'm Debbie Nathan, I'm Head of Consumer Research at PLAN, um, and we wanted to do some research specifically for today's event, um, because it's a topic of interest for us, we're really interested in finding out about the future of urban mobility, and we also wanted to introduce something that could help to spark the conversation today. So I'm here to share these results with you. Um, As Kevin just talked about, there's been decades of pressure on cars, but there's been certainly resistance when it comes to drivers. with such a wide range of alternatives, really what we want to try and understand is what is going to have the greatest impact. Um, I, for one, have been researching in London for the last two, three years with Londoners around their behaviors and attitudes, preferences, specifically around car sharing and more widely really around multimodal journeys. So one of the questions we wanted to start to unpick um, here today was what do consumers think? Now, we can't often ask ask consumers, you know, what what is it that they think they're going to do in the future, because they're not necessarily going to understand their actual behaviours in the future. If we'd asked consumers about whether or not smartphones were going to be the future, who knows where we would actually be today. But what we can do with research is we can start to understand what what is interesting in terms of key features, what is interesting now um, that might appeal to people um, that potentially could help us to understand that future, and that's really what this research was about. So it's always good to start out with some hypotheses. Um, We had three key hunches that we wanted to go into this research with. The first, most urban car owners intend to hang on to their cars. But just by how much? and, And are they likely to potentially really want to hang on to their cars? Or are there potentially other options out there that could sway them? Electric vehicles will make car clubs more attractive. Now we know there's a lot of conversations around electric vehicles, around um, private ownership of those electric vehicles and, and the barriers to those, but we weren't necessarily wanting to focus in there. We thought that there could be some interesting areas to explore with regards to electric vehicle features that could make car clubs more attractive. And then lastly, cheap and quality minicabs might see some ditching their cars. So as far as alternatives go, minicabs are probably the least alien to people, um, so potentially hold some of the least barriers when it comes to adoption. But one of the barriers that we do here um, in terms of the prevalence of minicabs being able to replace car usage um, is the price, and cost is often a barrier here. So we thought that maybe that could potentially be a, a way to investigate. So what did we do exactly? Uh, we asked 10 survey questions, and attitudinally they were focused around two key areas, one around on the left-hand side around car clubs, and one around minicab prices plunging. Um, with regards to car clubs, we wanted to focus the questions specifically around the three key features that electric vehicles could potentially provide to car clubs, namely free fuel. People won't have to pay for fuel if they are electric vehicles in the car club. Driving in bus lanes. We've all heard in the news the potential for electric vehicles to be allowed to do that. And then free parking. And by that, I don't mean just the ability to pick a car up in a car club and drop it back in a car club bay. I mean the ability to actually park up stop over in a borough go about what you want to do and pick the car up again and not have to pay for that time when you're parked we spoke to 883 people a good range of ages uh, a good spread in terms of where people live and work but I really want to focus in on the kind of the car ownership and access status so we wanted to ensure that people firstly and primarily um, understood car sharing so that was one of our prerequisites for when we spoke to people simply because if we asked people about, the appeal of car sharing features and they'd never heard of it, then we wouldn't be getting accurate results here today. We also wanted to understand people's current car ownership status. So we ended up with 57% private car owners, actually fairly similar to the statistic that Kevin quoted earlier today in terms of numbers of car owners in in Londoners. Um, We had 13% of people who had access to someone else's car. We had 4% of people who were car sharers. And that's not to say they're mutually exclusive to owning a car. We actually quite often in car clubs see the fact that car club owners also own a car themselves. So often it's a second car for people. And then lastly, no access. So we had 25% of people who had no access to cars. Um, but we did stipulate that people couldn't be disinterested in a car of the future just in order to be, a- to be able to ensure that the questions that we were asking we weren't going to constantly get rejected by people who potentially would reject the idea of a car in the future. So our first headline, younger people are more likely to consider a car club. We had 22% of people aged 18 to 44 say that they would li- be likely to consider a car club, o- over 11% of people who are actually over 44 years. People who have access to a car are more likely to consider a car club. Again, similar proportions here. We had 23% versus 11% of access versus ownership. So people who are currently have only have access to a car club were much more inclined to give up the idea of ever owning a car in the future versus current owners being willing to just give up their car themselves now. And then the last headline news here we've got is people who live or work in zones 1 to 4 are more likely to consider a car club versus people who live in zones five to eight. So we've got 22% versus 9% here. So that's probably the most statistically significant difference here of people living in zones one to four are more likely to consider a car club. And I don't think there's anything surprising there in that the the car clubs are more convenient potentially because they're more accessible um, and they've got more coverage potentially in those zones. And there's probably more likely to be awareness with the people living in zones one to four to think about being able to use those car clubs. So I'd like to open a question up to the room now. Um, We asked people whether they would be willing to give up their car in favor of car sharing alternatives. Just focusing in on the car owners, I want you to think about the percentage of people who answered this question who said that they would be willing to give up a car, to give up their current car, in favor of car sharing alternatives. Now, Kevin presented a a statistic of 10% from Gartner just before, so we're going to have that as our base level. And I'd like to get a show of hands for who thinks, in our survey results, more people would actually give up their, their car. So show of hands. Anyone want to put their hand up for just owners? Purely owners. A few hands going up there. OK, there's probably maybe a quarter of the room thinks it's higher than 10%. But it's a bit of a trick question. You're actually right, because it was 11%. So. Uh, <laughs> You could say that the statistics were pretty accurate when it came to our survey results um, in line with what Gartner's predicting. Um, But we saw 11% who would say they were interested or very interested versus a whopping 70% who said they're not at all interested. So quite a a significant amount of people who are not willing to give up their cars. That's when car clubs are presented to people at face value. And what I mean by that is no features, no benefits presented, just would you give up your car in favour of car sharing alternatives? But what happens when we introduce some of the features of what what I was mentioning earlier, electric vehicles? So if people didn't have to pay for fuel, I'm going to ask the same question again, get another show of hands, same question. Who thought more people, so hands up, if this goes up from 11%, more people would give up their cars in favor of car sharing alternatives if they didn't have to pay for fuel? Hands up. Okay pretty much the whole room and you're right, um, 23%, so that's over double um, in terms of people being interested if they didn't have to pay for fuel. What about if they could drive in bus lanes, I'm not going to ask you to continually put up your hands, I'm just going to give you the results now. <laughs> you can you can if you want Jason, um, 16%, so it actually goes down, this was surprising for me actually this one, I thought that driving in bus lanes people would be more interested in, but, but clearly I was wrong here, 16%, so it's fairly near to the face value, not offering that much. What about if parking was free? Um, 31%. So this has, of the three features we tested that electric vehicles could bring to car clubs, this certainly has the most appeal. 31% inclined to give up their car in favor of car car clubs if they could park for free. And then lastly, on to the minicab price drop. So we asked people if a minicab such as Uber were to half in price, and we gave them an example of four pounds for a 30-minute trip. what would they do? Would they give Would they give, give up their car? Um, and the results of that were fairly similar um, to free fuel, so 24% of people said they would be interested and um, 55% said definitely not. So just to summarise on, on kind of all of these points here, um, free parking certainly seems to be the most appealing. Um, that said, even just introducing features to people in terms of electric, what electric vehicles can do for car clubs promotes the appeal and, and potentially could encourage people more so to give up their cars. And interestingly, when we compare that, so this is at the full sample view, so not just car owners, we've got car owners on the left, and then our full sample on the right-hand side. This includes people with just access, people who don't have any access at all. You get a pretty similar pattern. So while at face value you go from what's 11% to 19% here, um, so there's a fairly significant leap in terms of appeal, which is to be expected. Actually, the pattern between them, so you're seeing that free parking um, is, the, is still the most significant. Um, you're then seeing minicab price plunging and um, free fuel at a similar level, and then lastly, bus lanes. So the feature level is the same for whether people own a car or not. So to conclude, most owners are not open to giving up their cars. Young Londoners are more open to alternatives suburbanites are least open to giving up their cars and car clubs with free parking are the most attractive alternative. What I'd like to do just now, if I can get the technology to work, is to show you some Londoners talking about this.
2: I own a car and I uh, use it primarily to visit my family. (laughs)
1: I can't justify the expense of a car just for using it at the weekend.
3: I will
4: not uh, give up my car for car sharing permanently, for short term maybe.
2: If I was to use something like a car sharing service like Zipcar, uh, my only concern would be that it's not very good for long distances.
3: To give up my car um, for a half price Uber, yeah I probably would.
5: highly unlikely that I would give up my car just purely because I have a family and our car is, you know, um, essential. I'm highly unlikely to give up my car. Uh, I use it to drive to the station uh, in the mornings um, and family time at the weekends.
4: The car is the part of my life so that's why I wouldn't be willing to give it up.
1: I definitely give up the idea of getting a car to use the car sharing definitely. I think the concept of car sharing is really good. Um, if I didn't own a car um, already, then I probably would consider it. The
2: reason why I feel like I'm able to give up my car is because I am aware uh, that parking is not an issue and that all of the running costs associated with the car are sort of covered by the initial hire fee.
6: Never will I give up
1: my car, Um, I use the car especially when I'm going out doing my shopping. I would never give up my car, no, not
0: likely, because I need it for home life. I've got children so for the family it's more convenient than to put them on the train.
5: I definitely wouldn't give up my car, we use it all the time, Um, so we use it uh, at the weekends, we use it during the week, my wife wouldn't be able to take my daughter to nursery and then. Get to uh, the station to then commute up to London, so we couldn't give it up.
1: I would consider giving up my car if there was free parking and if it if it was something that I used every single day. Parking in London is such a hard thing to do um, with the lack of spaces that like there are. So definitely using car share and things like that would be a lot better.
3: Free parking with car sharing does sound fantastic. It's. Hell of a lot expensive to park my car around here, and it's actually the reason I don't use it and use public transport enough. So, yeah, I probably would give it up if I could use a car share and I could find a car nearer to me to drop off and pick up as well.
1: So, just to reflect back to where we started, our three hunches, um, it feels like we can talk a little now about most open urban car owners intending to hang on to their cars. We saw the statistics of 70% 70% of people saying they weren't willing, but potentially with some features of electric vehicles, um, that could potentially change. We saw that there's sway there, with especially when it comes to free parking. Um, and then lastly, cheap and quality minicabs might see some ditching their cars. Not sure we can necessarily be conclusive here. It certainly appeals, but I'd like to see if we can continue the conversation around that to understand and unpick that a little bit further. Um, so, thank you for listening. The results of this are gonna be shared in a website after we're gonna send the URL after the event, um, but back over to Kevin. Thank you very
0: much. Could I ask you <laughs> <a question? laughs> Okay. Let me introduce our panelists. So, um, on the far, your far left, um, we've got Colin McCarrick, <laughs> um, who's uh, um, head of um, advanced transport at Bloomberg New Energy and Finance. And Colin's team looks at the economic, the technolo- te- technological, and the sort of policy areas of the future of transport. So Colin's got a sort of perfect setup for the, the big picture, if you like, of this debate. Um, Debbie, you've already heard about, and, and Debbie is very much here to sort of represent the voice of, of ordinary Londoners, based on all, all those people that um, Debbie's spoken to over the last few years. Uh, we've then got Oliver Le Grice, who's um, formerly um, chief designer of uh, advanced design at Jaguar Land Rover, um, and Oliver has, has, has worked at, at Ford, at BMW, um, at Mercedes-Benz. Normally, in what's called advanced design. So that's looking at, um, at concepts for cars five, 10, 15, even 20 years out. So I guess um, Colin's here to kind of reverse back into uh, the present from the future, because he's been spending so much time sort of dreaming up potential futures. And then um, on my immediate right uh, to Mandra Harkness, um, who is among many things. Um, the co-presenter of future proofing on Radio 4 and Tamanda is our um, Renaissance woman of, uh, of the panel um, as well as being a comedian and a broadcaster she 's just finishing off writing a book on big data oh, it 's done it 's done, it's yeah. done. Uh, and <coughs> completing a degree in maths and statistics so you Not know done. we're uh, <laughs> and the reason why the reason why she 's here is that um, her um, her and uh, it's not Joe Johnson, it's Leo Johnson. Leo Johnson. Leo Johnson. <laughs> Leo Johnson. Um, Boris's little brother, um, do a, a show called Future Proofing, and they did a great um, episode on the future of mobility, which is a, a big hit in the Plan Office, and I thoroughly recommend you look it up on um, iPlayer. Um, but it's great to have you here live and direct. Actually. Thanks. Thank you very much. So, um, could we start maybe by each of the panel saying a little bit more about themselves and their their connection with this topic, where, where, how they come at this topic from their background. So Colin, do you want to start?
7: Sure, thanks, Kevin. So as Kevin said, my name is Colin McCarricker. I manage a group called the Advanced Transportation Insight Service within Bloomberg New Energy Finance. So we're a team of global analysts looking at how the transport sector is changing due to a confluence of policy, technology, and economics. And we very much look at transport through an energy lens. So our company overall, uh, Bloomberg New Energy Finance, is, was a smaller group that was acquired by Bloomberg a number of years ago. We're an energy research division of the company. And mostly we focus on sort of where the overall energy sector is going, so things like wind and solar. But my team of analysts scattered around the globe and all the sort of major uh, financial centers of the world are looking at sort of where the transport sector is going. What does that mean for automakers? What does that mean for energy demand, for electricity, and for oil? So for example, we recently just published a piece Uh, two weeks ago, looking at the very long-term adoption of electric vehicles. And some of the work that we did showed that on a completely unsubsidized basis, electric vehicles hit this inflection point between 2021 and 2025, where the total cost of ownership falls below that of a conventional internal combustion engine vehicle. So then we're combining that type of analysis with where we think things like asset utilization rates from car sharing, from potentially in the future autonomous driving, Where does that go and what does that mean for this inflection towards different sources of of propulsion in the transportation sector? And then from there, backing out, what does that mean for things like oil demand, for things like electricity demand, and and also for vehicle demand? So that's a bit about sort of my background. Um, We're, a few of my analysts in in my team are scattered around the room, so you might be able to find them as well afterwards. Over to you.
1: So hi everyone, I'm Debbie Nathan. Um, So as everyone knows, I'm head of consumer research for PLAN. Um, So I guess in terms of my expertise in the topic, I've spent the last three years researching with Londoners on the ground, um, hanging out in cars, um, spending a lot of time shadowing experiences, understanding people's needs and attitudes around transportation, specifically focusing around car clubs. So I've been the, um, the head of research for Ford's Go Drive Car Club. Um, and spent a lot of time hanging out in in car club cars as well as ordinary cars just to understand the differences there. Speaking to people about their attitudes more generally as well about London Transport, um, both in terms of things like communication, behaviour, um, attitudes, different payment models and so forth. um, And also trying to understand people's behaviours and attitudes from other other platforms such as Digital Diaries, so we've, we've uh, spoken to o- over hundreds of people around on, on Digital Diary platforms to understand and, and get them to communicate with each other on discussion forums about pain points around travelling in London um, and what their experiences are like. Um, so yeah, that's a bit about me.
8: Okay, good afternoon. My name is Oliver Grice. Uh, Kevin said he would introduce me as somebody from the future, <laughs> which is a bit of a tall order. i are not going to be disappointed. <laughs> but uh, yeah, my job has been uh, really working within the uh, automotive design world for clo- well, more than two decades now. I um, actually scared myself last night when I actually thought it was actually closer to 28 years. So, yeah, it's a long time. And one of the things that we've noticed uh, in the last probably three or four years quite significantly is there's been a real change in in terms of looking at what, what the future holds for, for vehicles. You know, We used to look at concept cars and can't we make it more beautiful and kind of more attractive and so on but really these days um it really is about the, the, connect, the implications of connected car. Um, you know, it's about autonomy, all of these things, are, are, these topics are, are coming to hit us really hard. I, mean, it's a, I think of it as a kind of a tidal wave, you can see it on the horizon and, it, and it's coming towards us, but um, none of us quite knows exactly how, what the implications of this are. You know, We know that, you know... Um, New new entrants like Tesla, like Apple, um, Uber, and so on are, are going to make a massive difference to us. Um, new models of mobility, new providers, all of those things are going to are going to affect the, the the vehicle industry. So, what what what's, what is our response? You know, talking as a Jaguar ex Jaguar Land Rover person, what 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 should our response be? Um, Leave aside that, what should the response be? But um, I think for us as designers, we've probably concentrated on the, the implications and opportunities really for what, what, what can happen within the interior of vehicles. Cause that seems to be where autonomy and connected car and so on have probably the most um, you know, possibilities. You know, it re- really does free up the space you know, we all spend a lot of time in, in in these metal boxes, traveling around. What what are you going to do in the time that you have in a in a vehicle? You know, it's a centre for potentially for for learning, for wellness and health, uh, for education, even commerce. You know, all of these things are quite suddenly going to be a you know possible within that space, especially if you if you um, you know if you assume that. Always on, connected. Five G will will provide you know, the, the the services as you require. So, twenty twenty apparently is the time when that's supposed to happen. There's a lot 5G. of controversy. Well, five yeah. G yeah. is supposed to. I mean, it's, it's, there's some there's some debate as to whether that really will be the case or not. But you uh, just want to explain to the audience just
0: <clears throat> what five G would. Well, five G is. You know, you, you,
8: most of your phones are probably working on four, three or four G right now. Five G is is supposed to give you a massive bandwidth uh, between vehicles and between vehicles and the environment so const always on effectively so so the idea that they can they can um, they can one vehicle will know where another vehicle always is mm-hmm. avoiding collisions potentially I mean this if it drops out you know there's the potential for for disaster is always there but uh, so the idea is that 5g is going to be providing that kind of connectivity and that, is, that has profound implications as to the sort of services you will you will uh, receive in your vehicle mm-hmm. so anyway that's that's getting into the that's getting yeah. strongly into the debate isn't it um you know uh, as far as i'm concerned this is this is the this is a, a, a great topic it's never been a better time to be in the industry in a way it's it's the most exciting time you know leave aside your mark III cortina <laughs> all that was great you know pe- people obviously have 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 identified with vehicles as a, as a dream you know part of their dream fulfillment and so on but uh you know actually now is more exciting. You know, the implications for this stuff is, uh, you know, quite profound.
6: Mm -hmm. Uh, So, yes, uh, I am, as Kevin kindly said, I'm the co-presenter of Future Briefing, which is a Radio 4 documentary series uh, about ideas that shape the future, is our brief. And we we did one for the last series on the future of mobility, where my arduous duties included driving a Ferrari around the hills of Italy, with their chief test driver, that's the kind of thing that I do for you, the license fee payer. <laughs> <laughs> you can thank me later. Uh, and one of the nice things about that programme, which, which you're right, it is still on the iPlayer. They, they all stay up. Was that we got to go and talk to a lot of people doing stuff now that should be you know, offering one of one of the alternative futures of, of mobility. And uh, and one nice thing for me personally was that. Quite a long time ago, over ten years ago, when I was writing for the Telegraph motoring section, uh, partly to upset my Guardian reading father, but not only for that, uh, I they got me to be the spirit of motoring future. They did a Christmas special. Uh, somebody's name I forget was was past. James May was the spirit of motoring present. I got to let my imagination run, do some research into what was in the pipeline, be the spirit of motoring future. There was a photo call in Silver Shorts, but thankfully that's not online. So, uh, And one gratifying thing was that to actually come back to it for the radio program, a lot of the things that I'd picked up then and said, this will be the future, were indeed the things that are coming through, things like cars that could switch from self-driving mode to uh, you drive it yourself mode. Yeah. <laughs> you know what I mean. Uh, you drive it yourself or it drives itself. Um, and the idea that you'd have different vehicles for different purposes, that you might have vehicles for recreational reasons, uh, and that transport might become a separate thing from the idea of driving, the question of what, what driving is for, the question of what what powers are these vehicles, and if you have electric vehicles with that are mechanically different, then you can actually play around with a design that you don't need to have a a steering wheel you, you, you don't you know you could have a completely transparent car not in a skirt like this obviously uh, that, that there's all sorts of things that that you could play around with so so that was quite satisfying but it, I did also think back to something else I wrote for Telegraph quite a long time ago I my less glamorous duties included going to the Royal Academy of Engineering launch of a um, report on the future of transport when i was terribly excited and i thought it would be you know there'll be flying cars there will be self-guiding cars there will be electric tram systems there'll be monorails there'll be tunnels with you know elon musk's vacuum all that kind of thing and and they did indeed talk about satellite technology and you know what what we've now called big data technology although they didn't really in those days and to my immense disappointment, they weren't at all interested in using this stuff to give us more of the freedom that a personal car gives you. It was all about, well, you could use this to implement road pricing and thereby contain demand for mobility. This was the main thrust. This is the this is the engineers. And I did I do remember saying and this is more like social engineering than engineering. It it was all about how you could use really impressive technology and satellite and vehicle tracking systems, all of which are now uh, completely built in. We're not using them for this, but they're all built into new cars, new new cars constantly communicating with GPS systems Mm -hmm. and saying where they are and and this kind of thing. Uh, But it was all about saying, well well, we're not going to build any more roads, are we? And clearly, we don't want uh, more cars on the road. So what we'll do is we'll have a a flexible road pricing system that will basically say to people, look, you know, if you drive at rush hour, it's similar to what happens on the trains. If you drive at rush hour, it'll cost you twice as much. Why don't you use this road in the middle of the night instead Mm -hmm. or at least early afternoon? (laughs) And that way, we can basically use the same resources more efficiently. Mm -hmm. So we can do more with the same, or maybe we can do the same with less. And you really felt this was the whole thrust of the future of transport, as seen by, by some of these people, was to do either the same with less or, or even to do less. And, and I really felt when, when, the, when Transport for London had their successful Olympics transport strategy, which was to frighten everybody off traveling and, if possible, get them to leave London altogether. <laughs> Uh, then I really felt that was the kind of the zenith of of that, or zenith nadir maybe is a better word of that kind of approach, where the solution to transport is that you stop people travelling. <laughs> <laughs> uh, and obviously, I, I think that's the opposite to to what we need. And yeah, there are real problems with the fact that there are more and more people. We do still persist in wanting to have private vehicles for whatever reason. It's, just, it's really nice to have somebody doing some research and talking to people and saying, what you know, what is it you like about vehicle ownership instead of just going, well, clearly we've got to stop that. Um, <laughs> and, and so it, yeah, I suppose it, it, my attitude to transport is not necessarily that I'm attached to any particular thing. I own a car and a motorcycle and an Oyster card. Yeah, like everybody else, I'm quite flexible in what I use when, but it, it's the attitude that moving around, is moving around a good thing? Should people be able to do what they want to do, which to a large extent is moving around, quite often in cars, or should we persuade them that they shouldn't want that and they should want something else? And and that for me is the key question, I suppose. Yeah,
0: and I think you've highlighted a a shift in the way, uh, Oliver alluded it to as well, um, a shift in the way that about the industry thinks about itself and, and the language has changed as well. We used to talk about transport, I think you still do. Uh, but others talk about mobility, and I just wonder if you uh, if the, anyone else has got some comments on what, why, why has mobility started to replace transport, and th- does that, is it just a word change, or does it imply a, a change of purpose or something around, around those? I don't know, I don't know if you've got any comments on, on that language change and what it means.
1: So I mean, from having spoken to people about kind of travelling specifically around London, I guess one of the big shifts we've seen is the sense that people have got more control. and so they're able to kind of piece together their own journeys for themselves. So it's less about um, necessarily a mode of transport and it's more about your journey getting from A to B. So the likes of Citymapper is often quoted by people as being extremely liberating because they're able to just act more spontaneously. they're not having to plan as much. For their journeys, because they know that they, at, the, at the flick of a switch, so to speak, they can decide how they're going to get from A to B without having to worry that they don't necessarily know what they're going to do. They don't have to go through the lengths of planning, and I think that probably lends itself quite well to that kind of that language shift, so to speak, because it is about journeys and mobility, and it's not about the fact that you know, map lays it out as a kind of a series of icons. Um, but actually, all, all in essence, people are trying to do is basically get themselves from where they are now to where they want to be, and they'll choose the kind of the best mode of transport or the best mobility options to get them there. That's going to work in terms of their current priorities at the time.
7: It certainly sounds nicer, doesn't it? Mobility mm-hmm. uh, versus transport. Mm-hmm. I sort of picture being able to touch my toes or something. Um, <laughs> <laughs> but I think as well, I think it's a, a good point that, that's brought up. Is that is it? is it inherently a problem that you want to change people's behavior on? It is only to the degree that it has negative externalities associated with it. So what do I mean by that, sounding like an economist, is that the reason you don't want congestion is not because in its own sake, for its own sake it's a bad thing. The reason you don't want congestion is because there are environmental impacts with congestion, with cars not moving, sitting idle, or driving around looking for parking spaces all the time. That's a, that's a separate issue from the congestion itself that you can solve with different technologies for, for the drivetrain of the vehicle. Similarly, do you not want congestion because of wasted downtime, where you're not a productive member of society, and you can assign various values to that. Again, if you look at some of the potential technology options on the horizon, that may not be the case either. So the idea that you want to uh, change something you need to look at the underlying reasons of of, of essentially why you want to change it. And I think that gets at your point is, these aren't behaviors we just want to say, no more of this. If we can allow a behavior and a a choice to take place while cutting out the negative externalities associated with it, I think that's fine. I also think consumer behavior is not as immutable as we often take it to be. And I'll I'll give you an example from from San Francisco. Uber just reported that 50% of its trips within San Francisco proper are using Uber Pool. And if you ask the people beforehand, do you want to ride first in in a car on demand service? Maybe not, but that wasn't so much of a a jump from sort of a mini cab. If you'd ask them again, and so the last few years proved that wrong, you ask them again, do you want to ride in someone else's car where there's a bunch of other people? They say no, probably quite clearly would say no. But Uber made it very easy for the interface and the default option when you opened the app in San Francisco was on Uber Pool instead of on Uber X. So people push the button, Then they get there and somebody shows up and there's a bunch of other random people in the car and they go, okay, well, I don't want to wait for another one and they get in. And then they get out at the other end and go, well, that wasn't so bad. And then the next time they go, well, that was half the price, so I'm gonna do that again. So interface really matters when you're talking about changing consumer behavior and it's not as immutable as you think.
0: Just on what you just said there, Colin, about um, gridlock isn't, or congestion, isn't necessarily such a bad thing if you can start using the time in-grid lot more productively. Is that that kind of what you were suggesting there?
7: Yeah, and and cut out the negative environmental problems associated with sitting there idling an engine, yes.
0: Yeah. So, I mean, I guess I'm old-fashioned in thinking that mobility is about, you know, moving the maximum amount of people around as quickly and as comfortably as possible. Is that, would would you take a... Would you take a different definition of what, what the higher aim of mobility is?
7: I, I wouldn't necessarily take a different definition. I only mean that when we tackle problems, we need to look at underlying what we're really tackling. Mm-hmm. And I mean, if you take another statistic, accident road deaths in the US are up about 15% in the last two years, pretty, pretty dramatic increases, I think 8% last year alone. That's um, partially because people are driving more because fuel cheap but there, you can also speculate that that's because people are sitting around using their, their phones while they're driving significantly more as penetration of smartphones has gone up. So there's, these are rival activities that are going on and there may be a certain group of people who say, look, as long as I'm connected, as long as I'm enabled and in contact, I place less of a premium on getting finished with my journey right away than I used to before that connectivity was, w- was enabled.
0: But then there's other people who just want to get from A to B as quickly as possible. There are, yeah.
7: there are. Yeah. yeah, it's
8: interesting. You got the, the two words for me—you know, transport and mobility. Actually, both are quite utilitarian words, in in all honesty. And 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 vehicles, uh, you know, had the promise that they would give you freedom, the excitement of the open road. You know, mm. you know, the sixties, the seventies, your must Ford Mustang down Highway One. Mm. You know, it's that—that's the sort of wind in the hair kind of the expression <coughs> of, of kind of proper, you know. Freedom and, and freedom to travel, and the truth is that these days, for the most part, it's painful, isn't it? It's a it's a painful experience to have to you know get in your car, but within within minutes you're up against the bumper of the next uh, you know a, tra- a traffic jam, and and that kind of congestion is no fun. Okay, you, you might be able to use your time better within that, you know, and I'm sure that will happen, but <clears throat> we've got to try and find a way that that this kind of that kind of experience is is reduced. It's not good for you know the health of the city. It's not it's not good use of resources, you know. It, and, it, and it's kind of politically it's inefficient, you know, for an economy is to, to sit in in traffic jams. It's mm-hmm. it's not clever. So so this is this is the this is the kind of key um, the, the key nub, the nub of this problem. I think is is trying to find a way that you, you get around that kind of. Static traffic jam. It's, 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 it's static parking. It's, it's it's parking, isn't it? But but moving along, you know. And and that's, that, that is crazy. We can't we can't carry on like that. You know. We've got to find ways th- through autonomous solutions or shared uh, shared uh, you know resources yeah. that, that get around that.
0: But but just widening that out, because you raise the point that mobility and transport. That there's more going on than just getting from A to B. So that you know it could mm. be using your time to work or whatever. But I just Going back to what we, we, we raised in some of the introductions about um, people, you know, planners and policy makers have, the, have been planning for people to give up their cars or use their cars less. And they've been constantly surprised, I think, by people's attachments to cars. And I just wonder if people have got any comments or insights into why that might be. Because if you, if you get out a spreadsheet, it, you probably, you know, you wouldn't keep the car half the time. Mm-hmm. Um, but there's, there's something else going on. I just wonder if, if people have got any observations on, on that, because it, it maybe is a bit more than getting from A to B.
1: Well, certainly when we hear from people about, you know, you're talking about freedom there, um, we still see people viewing being inside a car as, as freeing. And, and even younger generations, as they're coming up, they're still wanting that sense of freedom and they've still got that attachment to cars for that very, very reason. I was actually on a journey the other day in central London and we offered for this respondent to dump the car because we were caught in gridlock. And he was like, no, 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 I'll just stick it out for a minute longer. And it it Mm. constantly surprises me that people, while they know that they're going to get caught in traffic jams and they might get snarled up in a gridlock, we do hear the fact that being inside this personal bubble that's private, that they've got their own space to potentially take phone calls for work, to potentially just free themselves and, and give themselves some almost some time off and some respite from being in London while some people might view that as a you know it's a nightmare and we do hear that too that you know people think that driving in london is a nightmare that you also get other people almost contradicting themselves saying i just want to get in my car and then i can put my music on and i i automatically switching off from those surroundings
6: it's i think it's almost i mean obviously there are practical reasons and i i did feel for the person who was interviewed who said well like, you know, I've, I've got kids. I've got a family. I, I don't know how people with kids manage without a car. I, I really have no idea. But, but I think it is more than that, because clearly people do manage without cars. It is physically possible to do most of the things. It may take longer. It may be less practical. Uh, but I, I think it's almost a unique physical space for autonomy mm. in modern city life. I mean, obviously, you may have your home uh, where you can do what you like inside it. Although obviously that's that's more and more constrained in London, it, it may be rented, it may be the size of a shoebox, maybe the size of a small car. Uh, but but a car has, it's, it's like it's your own space. You have to some extent chosen it, you're in control of it, you can do with the inside of it, whatever you like to make it feel like yours. But you also can move in it. So it, it uniquely is both private and also, it can take you to places. So you really can, and even though you're sitting in traffic and there's always constraints, but you can go from door to door. You can go from exactly where you want to go from to where you want to go. You can decide when to depart, even if you can't really control when when you arrive. And you can, you can take whatever route you want. You can listen to what you want. You can have whoever you want in the car with you or not. And I think there's actually. It, it's a kind of coming together of these different forms of autonomy that I, I think people are still very, very attached to. I mean, I mean, it's quite interesting with young people. I think I, mean, I don't know the exact figures, but I keep reading how young people on average stay living with their parents till they're 40 or something. Uh, it's a slight exaggeration, but but you know, a lot of people live with their parents into their 20s and 30s. For them, it must be like American teenagers of mm. the 50s that the car is probably the only private space <laughs> that they have. Um, I'm not going to speculate yeah. any further <laughs> on the details. <laughs> <but> <laughs> I, I
8: think you know there is a there's still a massive allure to vehicle ownership. I think there is you know amongst amongst particularly older people. I know that younger people have probably swapped you know that that association into gaming and, and, and mobile technology and so on. But you know without a doubt it's a it's a, it's still very it's still very nice, particularly if you're outside of a main city. To be able to get out on the open road and and, and choose your own destiny in a way, um, so in a way, having looked at you know your your, your survey there, it, it kind of sets up slightly a, a maybe a false uh, opposition. You know, it asks people, will you give up your vehicle? You know, well, no, probably not. It, it's about a mixed environment. the f- mm-hmm. The future is about you know maybe you do have a you know your own private vehicle. Maybe it's a maybe it's a very you know, expressive—you know—a machine to have fun in. You know, rather than, than just get A to B. But then there's other parts of your your travel experience will be sh- will be shared. Will be kind of smaller, yeah. autonomous taxis or mm-hmm. little pods that come and pick you up and deliver you quite quite uh, you know comfortably to your destination. So, so I don't think that you know the idea that you. You give up your car? No, it's, that's not the point. It's about providing new and more um, compelling, enjoyable experiences to people. You know, and then they'll take it on. You know, that's that's the key thing. You can't. It's very hard to push people into things. If if it's an attractive experience that they're getting, they're getting something out of it. You know, that's <laughs> enjoyable. They'll move into that. It's a natural kind of aggregation, if you like. I think we'd agree. I think. <laughs> probably yeah. has
0: better figures than I do, but it's it's around about half of um, car sharing users already have a car; they're just using it as a second car mm-hmm. or whatever. But I think I think the only reason we did that is that um, it's often the benefits of the sharing economy are often pushed as people will get rid of their cars. Mm-hmm. It's, it's often. It's often pushed as that's one of the policy objectives of, of those kind of services and why they get preferential treatment.
1: Yeah. yeah, and I agree. Actually, in order to reduce congestion, it doesn't have to be about giving up your car. It's about how do you actually get people to reduce the amount they drive into the city, mm. because actually what we've seen is you know suburbanites that you know I I don't know if I I agree actually I think people do need in certain situations they will need vehicles because they haven't got any other kind of access mm. um, and they might not be able to have any workarounds other than maybe cheap taxis in the future, minicabs in the future, but they kind of need their, their vehicles potentially if they're living in the suburbs, but don't necessarily need to bring those vehicles into the city. And that, those are the kinds of kind of, I guess, behaviors that potentially we might need to change for the future to kind of improve the congestion.
7: I, I think there's also something interesting. I mean, we're, we're in London. We naturally sort of think of our, our, our environment, but if you're a global car brand, you look, where's the growth in vehicle sales in the world? And it's overwhelmingly in emerging economies. It's in China and India and a few other places. So we have these views of how our entrenched behavior works because we hark back to going on childhood road trips and getting out into the countryside and being able to drive for four hours. Um, That's not always the case for everybody. And it depends a bit on if, there, there are a lot of cases where there are new newly upwardly mobile population segments where most of the vehicle growth is going to come from who don't have that previous experience. This is their family's first foray into personal mobility of any sort. So I'll give an example of that. One of the things we look at is electric vehicle sales globally. This year in China, there will be a few hundred thousand low-speed electric vehicles sold, completely unsubsidized. They're not registered. These are small, beepy little cars that, uh, are one step up, step up from a scooter. They have a maximum uh, speed of about 75 kilometers an hour. They're not allowed to go on the highways. They need to charge up after, after sort of 100 kilometers. So by all means, you would say these can't take off. People's personal mobility, diff- personal mobility requirements preclude this type of vehicle t- taking off. There'll be a few hundred thousand of them sold this year, primarily in sort of third and fourth tier Chinese cities where people are really newly upwardly mobile and this is a step above uh, and in safety and in, in uh, uh, mobility of, of a scooter. So this idea that we have sort of all of our human behavior and then juxtapos- juxtapose it onto other people in emerging economy segments and, and different urban landscapes there, I think is also kind of, if we're looking at where the global car segment is going, I think that's also kind of, kind of worth considering the differences there.
0: And the aspiration point's important there. I, I remember the story about, the, was it the Tata Nano? That was—I f- I forget the price, but it was, it was the world's cheapest car, yeah. and it, it completely, yeah, and it completely failed because no one wanted the world's cheapest car. Because <laughs> <laughs> if they were going to buy a car, they didn't want that tag around their, around their neck. Um, well, but just well,
6: I think. I mean, what you say is true, and, and we should remember that it's. These are questions for places like India and China, where. Yeah, why, why shouldn't those people want the same kind of freedom that we do? But it, it's not that long since these things were happening here. I mean, I remember looking at uh, motorcycle casualty figures, and, and uh, you know, like most road traffic accident figures, they have gradually fallen since the innovation of motor vehicles. But there's a massive drop in the 1960s. And I remember looking at this and thinking, well, that's interesting. I, I don't remember it becoming massively, massively safer. I think it predated helmet law. And then he looked, and it was the time when owning a car became affordable for a working class family. Mm-hmm. And prior to that, it would have been you buy a motorbike, you put your missus on the back. When she gets pregnant, you get a sidecar. And if anyone's ever tried to drive a sidecar rig, I'm surprised there's any of them left alive, to be honest. And then, and then when you get the kids, she goes back on the back, the kids go in the sidecar. And that was your family transport. And and then suddenly cars became an affordable option, and you know that's only our probably our parents' generation. It's not that long since we were those people going, "Hey, wow! Look, we can have a car. We can be inside. We can have a roof. There might even be a heater. Wow!"
0: Can we just moving um, to, to the sort of next five, 10 years and and going go to picking up on your electric vehicles point? So. Um, Totally take your point that electric vehicles will kind of overcome the price problem and the, the range anxiety problem. What about the, the charging infrastructure problem? So um, one of our clients is, a, in, is an energy provider and, and they told us that the, the government had to rein back on their uh, electric vehicles um, projections because the grid wasn't up to it. The, the grid could not um, charge. Um, The amount of vehicles that are projected and you know, because we're we're on the edge of the lights going out all the time um, Because of lack of investment in our in the UK infrastructure and the other thing was just how you physically um, Charge up all these cars, you know, particularly because they make most sense in in urban Environments, but um, there's lots of street parking and all the rest of it So I just wondered what your your take was on what the charging infrastructure roadmap is, for, to, to deliver on the vision that you mentioned.
7: Yeah, I think it's a, it's a very good point and one that isn't, there's a lot of uncertainty around right now exactly mm. how that evolves. I mean, one, one area we're seeing more activity in is electric utilities getting involved specifically in building the charging infrastructure themselves, because they do know where the pinch points are on their distribution network and can avoid those. So there isn't an overall system capacity, as in can you get enough flow of electrons down to these vehicles uh, from the whole system perspective, but there are network constraints in certain areas. So having the utility involved in being the one helping pick the appropriate sites and also, in some cases, actually building them themselves can, can overcome some of that. But at the same time, we do see this kind of gulf where the utilization rates on these things, on chargers themselves, are pretty low for a while, and that makes it pretty hard to build a standalone business model based on selling electricity or selling a subscription to something that sells electricity to be able to go around and charge these things. So then you kind of need some intervention, something to come and sort of b- break that. And, and I think there's some amount of business model innovation you can get that'll, that'll get you there. Some of the groups saying, look, we've got your eyeballs captive, we're gonna sell essentially the fact that we can put up a billboard right in front of you while you park there and charge in a, in a, in a parking lot. You've got others who are saying, look, we're gonna build a business around uh, cycling your battery and using it for frequency regulation on the grid and make revenue from that and use that to build the charger. Um, and then you've got things like car companies saying, well, we've made a big bet on electrification say if you're tesla so we're going to go out and build our own charger network because we recognize that that's a barrier i think you might see more of the car companies get get involved in a similar way in in the coming years ultimately though i think as you get further out um you get this sort of advent of much longer range battery electric vehicles so you see things like the chevy bolt launches later this year that's a roughly thirty five thousand dollar car with a 320 kilometer range the Tesla Model 3 in theory next year, similar range, similar price point, and then after that a whole host of them come in between now and 2020, already announced, already sort of in development in the sort of three to 500 kilometers of range. Still, still paying a premium for them, but eventually if that segment starts to take off sort of around 2025, you get more and more charging at home because you, you have enough range to do all the things you need to do around the cities. You have charging in destinations, so things like at the IKEA parking lot, So while you're there doing some activity, you'll plug that in, they'll put that up just because they want to attract the people, they're not worried about selling electricity to make money. And then you have highway side charging really starting to to come up. So that's where you see groups like Ecotricity going and saying, an energy supplier here in the UK, going and saying, if you sign up with us for your energy supply agreement, you get free access to our network of 180 fast chargers around the country that are now located at each one of the major service stations on the motorway network. there's definitely some some challenges ahead. There are some promising shoots, but it, there's still a lot of uncertainty as to which one of them really really grows.
8: Yeah, we, we've looked at it, looked at uh, charging as well. Obviously, there is the, the thing about going along. You've run out of, run out of charge. You have to wait three or four hours for the car to, to recharge at a at a, at a at a gas station or whatever. Clearly, there's people who want to make money out of you going go and get yourself a starbucks or whatever go and eat something that's fair enough the shorter term the high voltage charging is getting to the point now where it's where it's actually quite quick which is which is which is a real bonus you can do it quite anything, quick being it's it, you know w- within an hour you'll be you'll be fully charged <laughs> up, so which is a, f- a few the, starbucks the, the, the bit that, is <laughs> you're still you still, still at the mercy of, of you know, having to have a fairly long long wait um, one of the ones that was quite interesting was this this idea that you can induction charge. So it's like a plate that comes up underneath the vehicle, and and uh, I think we, we heard tales of how um, these were being set up in people's garages. So it's very easy; you don't have to plug anything, and you just sit there, and it and it comes up beneath the car and, and charges. It's not terribly efficient, but it's 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 nice and simple. The Problem was that. If your cat got sat, sat on this thing, and <laughs> you, you'd cook 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 your pet, you know. So so this is a, there's, there's got to be some clever ways of actually making sure that that connect, uh, you know that that moves up close to the bottom of the car. So well,
6: there was so talk of but there was talk of induction charging actually through the roads. Well, Exactly, and this yeah. was so, so that you could yeah. you could pull up at the traffic lights and and. You know we do a bit of recharging yeah. your car, Ollie, did you see okay. how efficient that was waiting to move on um, like, it was a well part. not very efficient <laughs> yeah no, no. this is a nice <laughs> idea but yeah. but it does bring back this question but where's where's this electricity gonna come from well, and they're already talking about well if we don't build hinkley points um and we keep closing the power stations <laughs> down we're going to basically half of our electricity bill is gonna to go to paying companies to stop making things when demand is high. I, again, it's back to instead of actually meeting demand with supply, it, it, it's about mm. managing demand. So I mean, I love the idea that all vehicles will be electric. I can see a lot of advantages, although I think the technology needs some work. But. But that would presuppose a lot of energy being supplied in the form of electricity that we're already struggling
7: to find. You're struggling to meet peak demand, not total demand. So there's a big difference between peak demand when everyone comes home, turns on all their appliances, demand goes up. Supply struggles to meet that. And when you talk about demand response and things, they're trying to meet peak demand. Overall demand, there isn't a problem meeting. So as long as you can get them to charge during off-peak times, that's, that's not really an issue. So if you say, look, and you start to see a lot of electric utilities for EV owners saying, if you own an EV and you sign up with us, we'll put you on a time of use EV specific rate that gives you a very specific, a very strong incentive to charge at night during off peak hours, essentially for the reason that you say is that uh, we don't want you to contribute to peak because that's what we're having trouble meeting. Overall, the electricity system is very much designed to have to meet this peak and the rest of the time assets sit very idle, both generation and grid assets. So if you can find a way to better smooth out the demand with a shiftable load like a like an electric vehicle, you can increase the average system utilization rate and not contribute to peak, and in some cases even decrease it if you go further out.
8: It's all about buffering, isn't it? And that's that's the point. It's buffering the the usage. So, you know, as you say, the nighttime when it, when there's excess, you you, yeah. you store it, and that's why Tesla of now i got these ones that you give the batteries you clip onto them. Yes. yeah exactly so that's that's their second mm-hmm. secondary product they make a make a larger but amount but that, that works battery.
0: in the sort of te- tesla the sort of bmw model where you know you've got the sort of people with double garages and things and and the, the charger in there but in lots of cities the street parking um, and what do you see lots of cables coming out of people's houses at night and you know i don't see that working in in paris and yeah, um, lots of European urban centres, for example. I just wondered what you, how you thought that would work.
7: Yeah, I mean, I think the density there really matters, and I think that is a, that is a challenge for this idea of everyone having garages and plugging these yes. things in. As is sort of the American suburbs model, right? Yeah. Uh, so then, I, I guess that's where you go towards looking at shared options that mm-hmm. have streetside parking made available. Um, and I mean, that's an interest that gets to an interesting question: is the economics of something with a low operating cost and a high upfront cost? get better if you use that asset more. So if you start to say, look, shared vehicles get us away from this scenario where 95% of our vehicles sit idle most of the time and towards a scenario where they're used on a, you're sort of tapping into some of that latent inefficiency of having a a billion vehicles in the world sitting there and doing nothing 95% of the time. If you can increase that utilization rate, the economics of alternative powertrain vehicles that have a lower operating cost but a higher upfront cost get better and better over time.
0: Great, I think at this point I'd like to invite Lars up to uh, give us the preview. So Lars Helsgren, do, do you want to yes, s- set up your laptop? Oh God, I think yeah. it's, it's down here. And We'll see if we can
9: get my laptop plugged into, yeah, where's my laptop? It's, it's
0: down here, let me, uh, let me help you. Ah, oh, okay. there it is, there it is. <laughs> right, right. So it's your machine, yeah?
9: You know it's what to do. It's my machine, and yeah. uh, hopefully I'll we will it get you. it up onto the screen.
0: And you can talk about me for a few seconds while I get that ready. Well, um, so Lars is Director of Research at PLP Architecture. Um, You might have seen some of their work um, around... Were they called lift pods in in the tower concert? Which um, were kind of like little um, vehicles that that travelled around (laughs) buildings and and, and the surrounding area. So um, PLP has, I think, got a, a... a reputation for thinking big thoughts about the future, and um, we happen to find out that they're working on a, a concept that won't be launched for another few months yet. But um, Lars has kindly um, offered to give us a, a sneak advance preview.
9: Okay, have I got? Is that right. all working? I've got. I'm here. You just need to put it to the screen. <laughs> <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> There we are, right, okay. Uh, yeah, you were mentioning these pods. So um, we had a look at lift systems. And lifts, of course, are, uh, have got a configuration that goes back from to the 19th century. They go up and then they go down in the same shaft. So we started looking at a, a proper transport system that loops around. Um, and of course, the track has got a topology in that you, you have switches in the track and so on. Um, After a while, we realized that the real issue here was to convince anybody to develop the system properly. And you had to design the track, the propulsion system, the control mechanism, and the vehicles themselves. So we started thinking a little bit more about how you actually go around doing intelligent transportation systems. So the diagram in the middle, I'll tell you more about that later. So what really is the urban challenges in the next 50 years. Uh, 50% of the world's population live in urban areas today. I expect the next 50 years it's going to be more like 80 or 90%. So we've still got billions of people who are going to pour into cities that are already overstretched and they're growing like crazy. And what the hell are people going to do? I mean, people spend days in, in traffic jams. And then suddenly the car appears and the car is beginning to acquire the ability to become a train. So that when you start to look at some of those issues with capacities and so on, you think, wait a minute. Here is a vehicle, but where is the track? So the first thing to think about is that if every car in a system moves at the same speed, then there's absolutely no need to have multiple lanes because you don't need to overtake anymore. And if you lay out your network so that your stations or your exits are always off the main track, then the main track can always keep on rolling. There's no need ever to have a traffic jam because you can control the traffic digitally. So the main thing about about spacing out cars, of course, is that you get an increased capacity in, in spacing out the cars. And one vital aspect of all of this is parking, as we've seen in the presentation before, is absolutely critical to the whole idea. So you need to have a system where the car just goes and parks itself. Forget it. You're the dog. Go and park yourself. If you stick this transportation system underground, of course you really need to use electric cars. There's no way you're going to have ordinary cars driving in tunnels tightly together. You have an incentive for people to buy electric cars. So with with automated vehicles, you have a a seamless connection to the existing road system. All you need is a way of getting in and out of the tunnel system. And you can either say, get out of the car and leave the car to go and park itself, or you drive off into the road system in the normal way. And, of course, what I'm saying is that we're not mandating at all what sort of cars it is, whether it's private cars, taxis, minibuses, uh, Uber Uber cars. It's irrelevant. That is something that the system can adapt itself to. So we started looking at what is the kind of tunnelling that you might want to do. And there was uh, the deputy mayor for TFL, Stout stood up a while back and said, you don't realize it, but tunnels are quite interesting in terms of their sizes and their cost. Because the cost of a tunnel is dependent hugely on the diameter. It's actually fourth power of the diameter. So that rather than actually if you double the diameter, the cost goes up 16 times. So having relatively small tunnels is actually quite attractive. It also means that you can begin to look at robotics for building the track, for building the tunnel. So robotic tunneling is something that could be quite interesting. Now from an urban point of view, what it means is if you get the cars off the streets, the streets can be reoccupied by people and parks and all of those issues. So one of the great ideas would be to reoccupy the embankment and turn it into park all of those kind of issues. And this is a very long slide, which I don't want you to read because it is very simple. With digital stuff, you can construct a car system where the car simply takes you to where you want to go. And that is not the way mass transport is, is constructed. If you're a mass transport system, it stops at every station. You then have to go to a station where you change to a different line you have to walk miles to get from one place to the other. If you're in a car, it takes you to where you want to go. End of story. So we did write a prototype software for the lift system, which basically has an app that says, you know, how do you pre-sort yourself into, into a gondola to take you to the right place? Cars, you're already by definition in the car you want to go to. So because the track never stops, it means that you can drive at a steady 50 miles an hour, I've taken as a working assumption. Uh, Also, you need to think about the capacities. If you're driving, if you have a car tube and you have cars with two meter separation driving at a steady 50 miles an hour, and you've got four people in the car, you have four times the capacity of crossrail. four times. So suddenly you say, wait a minute, this is the new mass transport system. And of course, would you rather be in the tube or would you like to be in your car? Your choice. So here is the diagram of what London might look like. You've all driven into London and you got stuck at the end of the bloody motorway. You know they are traffic jam inevitably. So I just picked the, the the twelve most prominent motorways into London and said, well, what if we built? roads, tunnels from there, which then intersected in a grid in in the middle of of London. And people then say, oh, but you can't possibly do that because the tubes are all over. But actually, I tell you, there is plenty of space left there. There's just oodles of space. There's no problem. You just need to dig on. (laughs) (laughs) And then, of course, you get your car, and it simply ends up in St. Martin's. Uh, this is in Covent Garden, and you just drive off. Or you just get out in Covent Garden, you say to your car, go and park yourself. End of story done. So we are hosting some meetings where we're going to find collaborators in this research, because obviously it runs from control mechanisms to building tunnels to, uh, to figuring out the design of various aspects and so on. So I'm hoping that we will be able to do this. Um, the picture on the right is Addis ababa Uh, Traffic Jam in Addis Ababa, this is a system that is global, it's nothing, it's not just London, but it's an approach that you could adopt everywhere, and I think the car industry needs to come to grips with the idea that in order to sell their product, they actually need to provide decent infrastructure. So that's my end of that one, and if you wanted to, I will show you a little preview of some of the software that we've been developing to do this. And something fell to the ground. And I just need to find the mouse and kill this one. Ah, bloody mouse. There we are, Okay. And somewhere here, yes, here I've got an AVI. Let's just go and get this AVI. So this is just early prototype software, but this is showing what the system would look like with the cars moving around. The blue blobs is when you have an arrival. Uh, and and someone gets out and gets his power parked. Of course, we're then simulating the intensity of use in the car car system, so red is more heavy use. Of course, the system can then adapt itself to reconfigure it because you've got multiple routes through the system. And this is keeping track of each and every car, where they are, where they're going, what's their destination, and how they're going to go somewhere. And uh, that's it, folks. Done.
0: That's brilliant, Jos. I I was straining to see um, on the London map where where the nearest outlet was uh, to my house. (laughs) uh, I guess I'll just have to wait and see. It's
9: entirely open. It's not anything that anybody has settled. I mean, it's trying to explain the concept. Uh, Clearly, we we will be looking at hundreds of stations, so we certainly haven't located them yet, that's for sure. Indeed. And uh, that's why we do research find out what is actually necessary to do to make this sort of thing happen.
0: Excellent. This is where we go out to you guys. So, um, maybe if we start with some specific questions for Lars, if you have any, and then we'll widen it out. So could we have the uh, microphones out, please? So uh, one, one here down at the front, and then one there. Just, just here, Elizabeth. Yeah. <laughs>
5: I would like to ask the panel what the individual ideal mode of transport or mobility is
8: So each member.
7: I'm I'm not going to 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 start. start. These guys guys are going to start. I can start. It's my bicycle. Why? Uh, Door-to-door, generally. Mm -hmm. I saw a a bumper sticker that somebody had managed to put on their bike, and, and they were comparing think it was uh, a car and a, and a bicycle, and they said um, one runs on fat and saves you money and the other one runs on money and makes you fat. <laughs> <laughs> so I'll stick I with like that it. as my <laughs> answer.
1: I'm going to be difficult. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to say that I can't possibly have one because my bicycle is the same, um, but it's just for leisure. It's not For me, it's not a mode of transport. I just use it for pleasure. Um, but if I was to to probably answer your question, I'd say the train. Um, and that's simply because I can be with people, and, and it's not crowded like, say, the tube is. You can see what's around you in terms of the open air, um, and you can do what you want to get on with rather than having to drive yourself there. Mm.
8: OK, first of all, I, I absolutely loathe flying, so I'll write that one out. <laughs> <laughs> um, it very much depends, you know. If 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 I if I'm if I want to travel and uh, on on road, there's times I love driving. If I've if I've had three pints at a pub, out in the in the Cotswolds, I want someone to drive me. You know, that's, that's So clearly, that's a that's another option. Um, may, maybe the best form of transport hasn't yet been invented. I always look at the <laughs> yeah, start start the dematerialisation. Right? That's, that's probably the the Most sophisticated, even more sophisticated than Lars's uh, system there. But and, and oddly enough, there's a there's a bit, you know, in, in the, the whole notion of us ha- having to move ourselves at all. You know, the vir- virtualization of of experiences and, and work and so on could mean that you know, on goes the headset and, and we and we travel virtually. And that's you know, having done a done a little bit of that in our, I see one of my old colleagues there. Uh, we did a lot of this uh, t- trialing things out in you know, VR. Mm-hmm. It's a very compelling experience. Maybe that's it. You can travel to places you never could travel in your wildest dreams in, in, in real transportational uh, solutions.
6: But that's the opposite to transport. You can, you can put the VR on, but you can't smell the Indian Ocean or get chatting to a bloke on a bus in San Francisco <laughs> through a, a VR headset. Do you have to hope, actually yeah. go to a real yeah. place? I, I suppose my I I would definitely say on the one hand there's no one ideal form because I do switch between modes for different reasons, different days. But in a way, maybe it is because the ideal one hasn't arisen. Because I think the I think the flying car. I know it's very old-fashioned and retro, <laughs> but you know, the potential of having yeah. all the advantages of, a, of an individual vehicle but moving in three dimensions. So there's an end to congestion, because you're using all three dimensions. And uh, and the views are great. And maybe you have a bit of the fun of, of flying, or maybe you just sit there and it, it flies itself. So so yeah, the, the autonomous, non-autonomous, individual flying car that, uses big data to do air traffic control <coughs> with all the other flying cars. <laughs> so someone in this room, please hurry up and, uh, and get this sorted sort of out, out so I can fly one.
9: Well, I, I'm much more modest. I, I live quite <laughs> far from London. What I really want to do is to drive my car in the normal way until I get onto the motorway and I just say, take me to the office. And then I can sit back and you know, watch the telly or do whatever. And my bike is fixed to the gym floor.
0: <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Thank you. Can and um, could I ask um, people to say who they are, where they're from, and by all means uh, make a point as well as uh, ask a question?
2: But uh, my name's Paul Reeves, and I'm going to do all of those. Uh, I work for Dassault System. Um, my point was sparked by I think it was Oliver was it you said at the beginning um, that this is a very exciting times for the automotive industry. I'd say it's actually given the appearance of being exciting. Um, partly because, and I could go on for this for ages, but I, I, I wonder if I'd like to get into people's heads thinking about what's happened in the car industry over the last 20 years through ideas of lean manufacturing and doing more with less kind of thing, which is you know part of our, part of our age nowadays. So I'm I'm kind of thinking that the car industry is actually producing its primary product. It's refined, it it's better, it's cheaper to make, it's higher quality, but it's made it even more of a 20th century product and it does things in a kind of 20th century way, much even more than it used to. Which, so it leaves us into a situation when you get new technologies like electric cars, sorry, electric motors, all the electronics for driverless, carbon composites, and the new business models which fit in today. It actually means that all of those new things can't actually be realised as well as they possibly could, in, even into flying cars and stuff like this, because you're actually... It's almost like I was thinking the idea if they'd done lean biplanes in the 1930s, you could have made them more efficient, but you'd just end up sticking in-flight entertainment systems and L- LEDs on and coming up with some new business model which involved, I don't know, flying to Bogner or something like that. So I don't want to completely uh, put down everything, but I think there is a reality here that the, the car industry does have to look at itself quite deeply to actually ask... Is always doing more with less a good thing? Does it always lead to good things?
0: Any response from that, no. particularly Oliver?
8: Well, okay. <laughs> so, I mean, it sounded like what you're saying was um, there's less and less profit to be made in vehicle manufacture, yeah. possibly, which less allows you less room for yeah. es- the esoteric or flamboyant kind of solutions. <coughs>
2: what a car is. Instead, by, by, users, sorry, <laughs> by using lean manufacturing and lean design and actually permeate it through the supply chain, you're actually narrowing down what everyone's doing in terms of production and design.
8: Yeah, I mean, it's, it's, there's two ways to of the, to at, the at core, To
2: the core architecture, I yeah. guess. I, I, well, I not wanting to get too uh, technical.
8: Yeah, I mean, there's lots of different ways of looking at it. You <laughs> could say that the, the, way, the ways that you, could, you can construct things, um, you know, that that can actually make personalization very much easier. You know, the, the rapid prototyping will become rapid manufacturing. Every vehicle may be completely different, one from another. Yeah, you could, personalization could be, a, you know, something, something that everyone's able to attain. With, with sort of, uh, with the systems within the vehicle, you know, the, the way that the interface works, just like your, your phone, everybody's got a different you know, wallpaper on the front the interior could be completely different and, and, and uh, transposable for each person. It could be that you even have, you know, a shared vehicle. You get into a taxi, upload your settings, and the whole thing turns into exactly the environment that you want. So, in a way, there are things that allow for this. Uh, you know, I think what you're saying is, uh, you know, you get, it gets away from from diversity or flamboyance or whatever. I think there's there's many opportunities
2: for that to the opposite to be the case. You know.
6: But, but <laughs> <laughs> it's an interesting question. Is, it's a difficult
2: can, one to answer. I guess what I'm saying is, you're um, not transcending the car. You're not moving on to a different form of mobility.
0: Okay. So there's um, someone got. Yeah, I'll take two questions at a time. And um, from now on.
2: Okay. But, yeah. Hi, uh, Nelson Sachs from Made by Many. So you you talked a lot about the the future of transport and how we actually are challenging the. The incumbents in the industry, but at the same time, I feel like, for instance, large solution is very ambitious. Is there any middle ground for this? Is there any, you know, tangible solution that will have, you know, you know, better s- supply of electricity or just better roads? Is there like a middle ground that we actually can tap in? Okay, and the
0: other question was over
2: here. Yeah, um, Nick Road, Central Saint Martins. Um, I'm very interested in the debate so far is very much focusing on the utilitarian aspects of transport. I'm just wondering what we think about the uh, more social dimension of car ownership in so far as it's a form of expression, it's a form of identity forming, it's, um, it, it's a way of uh, having a, a, a social coalescence around certain subjects that's beyond the utilitarian.
0: So the, um, two, two questions, one around the, the more emotional, social side of um, mobility, and one around the more sort of midterm, more practical visions of the future.
1: I'll happily take mm. the emotional side mm. of things. I guess um, from what we've been hearing from people, there's still a aspiration in terms of car ownership um, being a status symbol, and actually we've spoken to Generation Z and they're still very much in that, in that headspace that they're aspiring to own vehicles that, that can, can represent and express themselves with. But we are seeing people moving more towards the utilitarian, utilitarian angle when it comes to needing vehicles to also be able to provide them with that journey from A to B in, in situations where we are seeing more congestion and they're not able to necessarily do that so well. Um, so I think certainly we're still seeing aspiration being key. Um, but maybe less so, uh, and with people potentially um, also not necessarily buying vehicles as early on um, in their lives. So Generation Z potentially holding back and waiting till later on in their lives to, to, to buy into those vehicles, but still, you know, we talked about the fact people aren't wanting to give up owning their current cars. I still think in terms of the future, people are not wanting to give up the idea of owning a car, and they still aspire towards it.
9: But surely one of the big issues is family life. Uh, you know, pretty well, my children, grandchildren, you know, before they were married and had kids. There's no way. I mean, car, you don't be ridiculous. Once you have kids, you want a car.
4: Yeah.
9: Uh, it's very simple. Don't you agree?
8: Yeah, I mean, definitely. Uh, one of the things, uh, it, talking about this middle ground, it, make, it makes sense to me. Is that, well, you know, you talked about this go away and park yourself. Mm. I mean, generally speaking, I would imagine that the, the infrastructure of roads it, exists. The likelihood of large amounts of new infrastructure is, is, I would say, fairly low. Let's make the most of what we've got. And, and one of the things that really strikes me is, you know, I don't know if anyone saw this thing on the BBC where the, the, the architectural firm had done this vision of a suburban street in Harrow where uh, all of the cars are taken away, the parked cars are taken away, and, and it's replaced by a, you know, yeah, a public yeah. space, um, you know, play, a play space and so that, you know something like that, it's, it's, uh, or, or, or an activity space, it was fantastic. I mean, the thought that 95% of the time cars are parked. Yeah, you look at, the, you look, at those, look at those streets, it's, they, however beautifully you design the car, it's like litter on that street. And, it, and, it's, and, it's, and, it's, com- and it's completely un- unreasonable <laughs> I know, I know, yeah. to have you know, that amount of space taken up with, with parked vehicles. It re- but it really I will is. take you
9: up on the investment side of things because it is absolutely clear that uh, the world at large is spending billions on what's called mass transport. Yeah, your, you know, your Crossrail ones, your Crossrail twos, you know, your eight underground lines in Riyadh. You know, we are spending an enormous amount of money on that, and part of our particular vision is the fact that the car industry and the private investors can actually provide at least half of the investment in that the vehicles don't have to be bought publicly this is the huge advantage of the car system is the cars are bought by individuals and paid for by individuals so suddenly you know you can probably build two or three cross rails um, uh, you know, or each one of those lines in our system is equivalent of one cross rail, and I'm expecting that they're probably half or a quarter of a price, so you could build that system for the cost of two cross rails. Mm-hmm. Come on. Did, Colin. Did <laughs> the fact, the fact, I just comment on that. Yeah.
7: I, I question whether you can solve congestion with more infrastructure. I, I think you, you invariably when you see new flyovers added, new uh, highways built, imme- almost instantly they're, they're, yeah. they're full because there's this idea of sort of supply and demand. And I heard this sort of anecdote that I, I can't verify because I certainly wasn't around then, but that the average speed in, in central London has been about 18 kilometers an hour since the time of a horse and or 18 miles an hour since the time of horse and carts because that's roughly where supply and demand intersect. And adding a whole bunch of supply just brings in, in yeah. more demand. You yeah. slide your way up w- that w- curve.
9: W- one of the big advantages of having a new system is dynamic pricing. Yeah. Because with dynamic pricing, you can actually do something very sensible in terms of exploiting the system to its maximum benefit. So I think you can increase the average speed dramatically by putting mm-hmm. in new infrastructure. It's just that you really need to have a big political push to do it. But you know, you look at George Osborne and the amount of money that he's putting into infrastructure, and you think, well, hang on a moment, is that actually the right way to go? Hmm.
6: But this question of supply and demand is exactly what I was talking about at the beginning. There are basically, well, you know, there are two ways to approach most things in society that people tend to want but have downsides, and one of them is to try and limit demand, and one of them is to try and increase supply. And see, to me, I would say, if you build a new flyover and it's immediately full, that's a sign that you needed a flyover You know, if you build a new supermarket and people go there and buy food, that's probably a sign that there were people nearby who wanted to buy food. Uh, And and I don't think people are going to start eating immensely more food because you've opened a new supermarket. They'll perhaps shop somewhere they didn't shop before. They'll perhaps have a shorter walk home. In the same way, if you build a new flyover and it's full, you probably needed a flyover. There's very little going out driving just for the hell of it. Uh, I won't say there's no driving for pleasure, and certainly as a motorcyclist, you know, going out to ride for the pleasure of riding is quite possible. People don't tend to do that in rush hour when there's congestion. <laughs> People tend right. to do that precisely on a Sunday afternoon when, when the roads are empty, and <laughs> the, the idea that, well, you know, we, we're going to have less congestion by reducing the road space, which does seem to be the policy in London. Our local council have come around and widened the pavements in an apparently random configuration, <laughs> uh, which uh, the only benefit of which I can see is going to be to them, because they will come back and say, oh, there's a parking problem now. Let's ask you again about residents' parking, because every time we ask you, you say no. And, uh, and, it, and the idea that by cutting down road space, which does seem to be a very explicit policy in London, that somehow you're gonna improve congestion, is an idea that would only make sense to somebody who thinks if we make it bad enough, people will stop driving, because they're clearly only driving to be willful. Mm. If the flyovers are full at peak times, to get back to the electricity analogy, mm. flyovers are full at peak times, they're not gonna be full the rest of the time, well, great. Uh, it means at peak times, people can get where they're going a bit quicker, which is kind of the point of
7: transport as a rule, <laughs> it is, but I think the example with food, there aren't many substitutes for food. There are some for driving at peak time, riding your bike. So there are both push and pull factors, and yeah, those are, those are some of the push factors to try and get people on their bike. But comparing it to building a supermarket and people wanting to eat, uh, there aren't substitutes for food, but there are for transport. But,
6: but, but implicit in your argument is that people ought not to want to travel, but people do want to travel. People don't need to go to supermarkets and buy food. You know, we could all have a pig in the yard and grow potatoes. <laughs> <laughs> We've kind of got beyond that. I mean, most of human life is not about the bare necessities of existence, certainly in, you know, in advanced economies. And great. You know, pe- people always said to me, why do people have 4 by 4s uh, Nobody needs a 4 by 4 especially in London. And I would say, well, yeah. You know, nobody needs an inside toilet and hot water. My mother grew up without an inside toilet and hot water. But I'm really glad that those things are now the norm. And I actually think that being able to travel independently when you want to, where you want to, without getting unreasonably held up in congestion, some of which appears to be deliberately made to try and discourage us from traveling, I I think that the freedom to travel is a human good.
8: But one, one, one person's freedom destroys the freedoms of others. I mean, that's the point about, you know, using this space for just vehicles. You know, may, maybe one day you press a button and your car goes and parts itself. So you, you, you get that space or, back. or maybe you have a flap you know? in the
6: pavement. Or maybe... <laughs> yeah. I've seen these in cities. I can't remember which yeah. European city. It's a thing, you you drive onto this thing in the pavement and it goes down Disappears. and there's an underground yeah. car park. Brilliant, you know. I I'm not particularly attached (laughs) to having a car parked outside my house, but I do think that maybe if we started with what people want and see if we can provide that while minimizing the bad things like pollution and Mm. congestion, that that would be a better way to do it than to start by saying, well, people want the wrong thing. How can we discourage (laughs) them?
8: Here's a statistic for you though. Listen, uh, per square meter in London, you know what it costs for, for land. In Kensington and Chelsea, it's, uh, I think it's something like um, uh, 12,000 pounds per square metre. Okay. So this in, is being in floor space. This is not yeah, land, Yeah, okay. Yeah, this but land. Think about, That's think different. About, yeah. different okay, fair enough. Yeah. In, in Wandsworth, it's mm. 5,000. And in, uh, I don't know if anyone's from County Durham, it's only 800 pounds <laughs> there. <but, laughs> easy, the thing, if, if, you, if you take the spe- that space up with a with a Range Rover, which is 10 square meters, that's 120 grand in, in Kensington and Chelsea. Not built, but yeah, occupied, which makes them a bit of a bargain. I'm not trying to sell anybody a <laughs> Range Rover. <laughs> <laughs> Go, going back to Colin's point about,
0: uh, you hear us a lot about, you know, you build more roads, they just fill up. Mm. Um, I guess it goes back to my early question about what's the higher purpose here, because if... If it's about maximizing mobility in the way that I described, about maximizing the the amount of people moving around as quickly as possible. But you're still maximizing. You're getting more people around. Um, yeah. with, with those more people, they might be going at they might be going at the same speed as they were before, but more people are moving around. So it, it depends what your higher purpose is. Is it to avoid gridlock or is it to get more people around? Are more
1: and people p- just moving around in vehicles, though, because I don't know if I agree that actually people would have been doing those journeys in their cars anyway. They might not have been. They might have been doing those journeys by another means of motor transport. And they suddenly have this option to potentially, that might not have been viable before that, to potentially be able to do their commute home that they they may have just always given up on because that journey took them way too long. Suddenly they've got a slightly more direct route. It might still be congested, but it's more direct than going on three modes of transport, a tube, a train, and then picking up their car at the station at the other end
7: and I mean I'm not I'm not gonna advocate not building more infrastructure I'm just saying that that alone is definitely not gonna get you there and the idea of minimizing uh, externalities is exactly that you're rationing public good to some degree and you said it's this is a this is in your view a, a right that that people have to freedom of mobility well if you have a scarce resource you have to ration it somehow so you're saying look we want you to do less of something and yes that involves both incentives and that involves penalties. And that, that is something that you have to deal with. Those trade-offs of opportunity costs are things that you have to, re- to to deal with when you're dealing with scarce resources. It doesn't mean you ignore what people want. It just means that you acknowledge that you need to push them towards some things that that no, but that, that have that have social benefits. I mean how how do you propose to not to, to to avoid any of any of that trade-off, to just say we should we should accommodate everybody's needs, apply that to other forms of social spending around healthcare or something? Do we just keep building keep building and building and building, and building everything? Yeah.
6: Well, okay, let's let's use an, an analogy then. Um, the the air quality, which is you know, still an ongoing issue in cities, mm-hmm. but in the nineteen fifties in Britain, air quality was so bad that thousands and thousands of people died because of the smog. Mm-hmm. And they went, we've got to do something here. They brought in the Clean Air Act. Uh, and they, what they said was, well, you all heat your houses and do your cooking and boil your water with coal. So in future, we're going to ration coal. And you can only wash once a week, because you've got to think of the externalities. So you can still use coal, but you can only use 100 weight per year per, per family, instead of using as much coal as you want it, because we've got to think of the externalities. Of course, they didn't do that. They brought in the Clean Air Act, which said, Use smokeless fuel. Factories don't pump out this harmful stuff. In fact, factories, why don't you move out of the center of cities? Uh, They actually changed the technology that people were using so that we can use far more energy in the home now than we would have in the 1950s. We can have central heating and hot water on tap and all those other lovely modern things without having killer smogs. I mean, Basil Jet. It was Basil Jet's what death day or birthday, something yesterday. Who built the lovely sewers, which I'd like you all to appreciate at least once today.
1: <laughs> <laughs> you choose
6: your own time. And but it, if Basil Jet had had that approach, when he went to Parliament and said, "I've got this scheme," he would have said, "I've got this great scheme. Right, the problem is that London is just overwhelmed with human waste because the population is growing. The new scheme is that we will give." every household, two buckets, a brown one and a yellow one, and we'll collect them once a week. uh, And that way, people can be aware of how much waste they're producing. and it will incentivize them to produce less waste. <laughs> and they didn't do that. They, they built some sewers. I couldn't agree with you more. Really, <laughs> <laughs> tunnels. We need tunnels, uh, we need power stations, we need nuclear fusion, so we can all have electric vehicles that are really cheap. We need flying cars so we can use all three dimensions and not get congestion. We need a, we need a bit of vision.
0: Absolutely. I, I'm
5: keen to get one more round yes. of questions. <laughs> um, so over there and at the back. Uh, hi, my name's uh, Adrian Clark. I'm a vehicle design student uh, at the Royal College of Art. I think the thing that's been kind of slightly overlooked is it's not it's it's about cost and it's about overall cost. And I would imagine most working people not wanting to politicise this whole thing, but have a have a budget for transport and. If you have a car, you essentially have to use it because you're paying for it, whether it's sitting outside your house or you're stuck in traffic. And and it's also... You know, I mean, I'm quite fortunate, I don't have children, but I, I can imagine, you know, <laughs> if you've got to take kids to school and you've then got to go shopping and you've got to take the kids to see grandma, you know, a car or your own personal vehicle, it's there when you need it, 24 hours a day, you know, you have a family emergency or you need, you know, you suddenly go away for, you know, a weekend or whatever, you know, your car is, is right there, it's yours. It's how you like it, you know. it's your CDs in the glove box, the heating is set how you like it. And I, and I think you know a lot of what we've seen and heard today has perhaps overlooked that slightly. Um, I guess my, my main question that I wanted to ask is actually for Colin, and it's something you said right at the beginning, um, was you talked about the cost of uh, electric vehicles and how there was gonna be an inflection point in 2021, I think you said, and they were gonna get cheaper. Um, I'd be interested to know why you think that's the case and would you agree that if they are suddenly going to, the the overall uh, life cycle cost is going to be lower, are we therefore going to see more cars because I'm going to have guilt free electric motoring. And with a bit of luck, it's going to sound like a TIE fighter. So, you know, we're going to have, you know, and, and actually, if it's going to be on uh, autonomous, you're not even going to need a license to drive it. So that's another barrier to entry that's been been taken away. So are we going to see an increase in, in, in vehicles on roads?
7: Yeah, so Colin, I guess... Colin, could, would you sorry. mind holding that thought? Yeah.
5: And I'll just take a few more questions. Of course, yeah, It's, of a, it's course. the last
0: round, you yeah. see. So we'll t- I'll take four questions, and then we'll have to wrap. So um, at the
3: back yeah alistair donald from the future cities project um my my question was linked to this uh, higher purpose point as well because kevin you were saying in, in right at the very start uh, that I, th- I think it was 75% of people you said had aspirations to for better mobility in the future and for buying cars and it was a global survey. And I just wondered to what extent was that global survey segmented and did it uh, did it reveal different results for what's, what's the, the, the attitudes here in the UK and America from, from elsewhere in the world? Because instinctively my experience when speaking to people here about mobility is a bit of a pessimistic view and I have to say it's one that's come c- through quite strongly 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 on on some of the the comments on the panel. So uh, if if it is a bit more pessimistic here, and I'd be interested to know if if there was a difference here and the rest of the world, then how is it that we uh, kind of overcome that, because the, the types of schemes that we saw right at the end there presented for, for you know, the future of car mobility, it seems to me that we, we need something more than just a kind of grudging, you know, uh, now we've got kids, so we need to get around a bit more. We need a bit something that's a bit more visionary and a bit more aspirational, and how do we actually get that?
0: Great. Um, could, we, could you bring it down here to the guy in the front? And who's got the microphone at the moment? Yeah.
4: Uh, Richard Matthews from Arab. Um, A couple of um, observations. I wonder if car ownership is a bit like um, smoking. Mm -hmm. It's much more difficult to give up once you've started than not start at all. Uh, And I've got two kids who are in their 20s, and they have no desire to own a car, which for me is extraordinary. Um, I'm I'm a real car enthusiast, but thinking back 20 years when they were very little, I moved to Hong Kong for two years, and I didn't buy a car, and I didn't miss it. And the reason for that was the public transport there was cheap, and it was everywhere, taxis, buses, whatever. Uh, and I had two young kids, and we just got round on public transport. Um, so I, th- I think there's a combination of things there. If, if things are convenient and cheap, I think people will use them.
10: Okay, and the last question to Nika. Uh, Nika McDonald, Big Potatoes. I just wanted to pick up briefly on what (laughs) Oliver... It's an innovation manifesto, which bears on my point. Uh, Oliver, you said that one person's freedom destroys another, which is kind of anti-JS million statement. Um, I think if if we're more innovative and more productive and produce more, then everybody can have more freedom. And if you compare this century to the 19th century, there are four or five more times people on the planet. Most people, on average, live a better lifestyle and have more freedom, which is a function of that. So I think... That's the answer. I'm not saying it's simple, but it's not, uh, you know, it's not a zero-sum game, as they say. Um, I had two brief questions. One for Debbie. Um, We haven't really talked today about what's changing in people's need for transport, and that seems to fundamentally affect what the future, the shape of the future. I'd be interested to know what your research has revealed on that front. And then to Lars, um, we also haven't talked about the idea of kind of fully autonomous Mm -hmm. automobile systems, which has been the sort of, you know, the great, great white hope, so to speak, of Innovate UK and others. Um, and I do wonder when we think about those things, one, I think we have talked about the lack of autonomy of autonomous vehicles for humans, yeah. and you know, the idea of the freedom to drive. But I also wonder if you've really thought through the scenarios of using them. So you have your car tube where people come off at a certain place and connect into the traditional road system and so on. I think the assumption of all these systems is that people know where they want to go. All right. And I'm not just saying you go out for a Sunday drive or you're Jack Kerouac, you know, on the road and so on. But actually, when I get in, I use a zip car as it happens. When I get in the car, often I don't know where I'm going. I have a general idea. I head north and then obviously stopping by by the roadside, I check my, you know, my maps on my phone. I kind of work out where I'm going or where I'm going changes. Or something, you know, there's all those scenarios, and it's a very human thing. Or you get where you're going, and you realize, actually, you're in the wrong place, because you remembered the wrong pub. And I just wonder if we really sort through those kind of very human, stupid side of things, in the best sense, in all these scenarios. And I can just see all sorts of people ending up in these vehicles going, get me the fuck in somewhere else, (laughs) because I'm not where I want to be. How do I make this vehicle turn around and find where I want to be? Uh, So, you know, well... uh, i
9: certainly changing where you want to go as you're in the system. Yeah, sure, why not? You just say, no, I want to go to place X instead, and it takes you to place X instead. That's not an issue, as far as I can see.
10: I guess what I'm saying is I can't even use Siri to do something. Yeah, Yeah,
9: but you use CityMapper, don't you?
10: Yeah. Yeah,
9: exactly, well, there we are. It's exactly the same as CityMapper. You're sitting there, you've got an interface, and it says, ah, oh, I forgot. I need to go to place X instead. Place exits then. Oh, the car tells you, oh, it will now take another three minutes and, and it will cost you another three pounds. And you say, yes, done. Yeah.
6: Okay. It, it will show you a picture of the pub. It will go, oh, yeah, it will show Do you a picture this of the pub. pub? And you go, yeah, yeah, yeah. no, you'll, no, it had something green on the left. And then it will, it will sort through and go, here are three pubs with a green door on the left. Was it one of these? Yeah, yeah. That's what big data is all about. <laughs>
0: <laughs> right, we're going to need to wrap up, I'm afraid. So could I ask all the um, panellists to take one of the questions and if you can, say what you would do if you, if you were made mayor for six months. What what policy would you would you pass in London um, to improve mobility in London? So Lars, you've kind of answered one of your questions. I've, any, I've any, answered any, it already. You, exactly. would, you would implement the car tube. I know yeah, what yeah. you're absolutely so so absolutely.
7: Come yeah. on. On the battery prices, I think is the one I should answer, or the the costs of vehicles. So, the reason we think that and the analysis that we've done is we've been gathering prices on, or gathering data on EV lithium ion battery prices for the last five years, going back to 2010. And over that time, we've seen them come down 65%. So, with that, we're able to do some work, both top down and bottom up forecasting on where that goes over time. We also look at the improvement in traditional vehicles over time. And that's how we get to that sort of 2022 2023 inflection point where the total cost of ownership gets cheaper on my day or my how long do i have six six months six months um probably a lot more bicycle lanes and uh, a lot of roadside uh charging stations reserved for shared electric vehicles okay thank you
1: so i will take the question um, that was specifically uh, targeted at me in terms of Changing transportation and needs. Um, I don't actually think it's necessarily the right way to think about the question. Actually, I kind of I would argue that people's transportation needs are primarily the same, but actually, it's it's actually their attitudes to it that have changed. Um, insofar as to say that, you know, I talked earlier about Citymapper and people kind of wanting to feel in control, and with that comes the sense of you know i'm in w- within my rights to expect transport to come to me i'm i'm within my rights to be in control of it to know exactly when i'm going to when i'm going to do it and exactly how long it's going to take and i will almost kind of hack my way around the city um, in a way that suits me so actually maybe maybe sort of attitudes such as spontaneity such as access and on demand kind of those kinds of things are kind of becoming more important for people but their their transportation needs are primarily the same they still need to get from where they are now to where they want to be in the kind of the best way possible that suits their needs whether it's through carrying cargo or avoiding the rain um, or avoiding other people that they don't want to be alongside so hopefully that answers your question there Um, and if I had six months um, as mayor I think From my experience of having understood things like car clubs um, and the fact that actually consumers don't so much understand them, um, I would say that actually there's a need to develop some kind of consortiums and the fragmented nature of these types of services and these types of alternatives isn't helping people to understand what their options are. Um, So if we could kind of, in a similar way to Boris bikes, the reason why that worked so well is actually it was government backed. Um, and it's kind of people started to understand it because it became big. And it's all about having the right coverage um, because without the right coverage, then people are not going to take it up. And it's a bit chicken and egg. You know, if you haven't got the coverage, people aren't going to take it up. If people don't take it up, you don't get the right balance and utilization. So I would say form some consortiums, don't necessarily get rid of the competitive advantage, but kind of try to standardize some of the language that can help people to understand what these different alternatives are.
8: Thanks. So <clears throat> the the question I'm responding to is what was one at the back there, which I which I you know made my ears quick up a little bit. It's the idea that the, the visionary solutions. I think that's a really important point. Um, you know, uh, it's the it's a job of designers. You know, to, to 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 design the future. It doesn't have to be a utopian, but it has to it has to be something that is people centred, and 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 genuinely gives a, a strong vision. Because I don't think the future is going to be. Um, you know, presented to us by, you know, technocrats or, dare I say, accountants. I'm <laughs> where we are in Bloomberg, They'll probably make some enemies, but, uh, you know, it's about making sure that the that, that designers' vision, that's our, that's our job, is to vision the future mm-hmm. and to do it in a way that's really compelling, and it will guide, you know, the direction that, that we that we go, you know, incrementally changing things a little bit here, a little bit there, ultimately doesn't get you to, to an end result. So... That, that's my key. Uh, that would be the, the point that I'd respond to there. Um, as to what I would do if I was, you know, mayor of London, if I borrowed Boris's wig for, uh, for six <laughs> months and chewed it. Th- I think there's some of the stuff, it's, it's quite, again, I said, you know, incremental solutions. Actually, incremental solutions could make a big difference. I, I remember driving around when, when I used to live in London, when the schools were off, suddenly everything opened up. You know why? Why do we expect? And this is about freedom. I didn't mean to kind of, you know, stand on anyone's toes anyway. But but the point being that if you if you are able to transport children safely and uh, you know in in an efficient way, you you open up the 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 roads for for other uses. Also things like um, you know everyone driving to to supermarkets to get their to get their stuff isn't actually necessary that stuff can be a lot of deliveries can happen in London they happen in the day things clog up that stuff can happen at night you know autonomously uh delivered uh, in the, in the dead of night you know suddenly the whole the whole road system can 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 be opened up you know so so um, some incremental solution so so that's what I would do I don't know whether Boris has got that in his power or i would but uh you know
6: uh, I actually, I'd like to go back to a question we, we kind of failed to answer earlier about the the emotional and and social aspects of, of transport. And I'm actually this is, this may sound like a like a cheap. I'm not sure you can completely separate that from the utilitarian ones because when when people say, well look, we need a car so that my wife can drop my daughter at nursery and then get the train to work, that that is essentially social, the the ability to have a cart with which to conduct your, your family life, or, you know, or your, your just your social life, widens your horizons of, of social potential. Uh, I mean, there was, there was studies in Victorian times of how we, we were genetically changed by the introduction of the bicycle because uh, poor people were now able to court and marry people from a village further away <laughs> because that was your, your kind of your pool of potential mates went out to where you could reasonably cycle <laughs> instead of where you could reasonably walk and so you know if you start to think about transport in that sense see that it is it's, it's very much all about our social and, and emotional life and and I think it's a bit disingenuous if we either try and pretend like oh I't have a car because we really need it uh, is, you know, what, why, be, why be so defensive? It's it actually, it enriches us in all sorts of emotional and social ways. And, and so that's why I think we need to deal with the unwanted social impact by saying, well, okay, what does everybody want? And how can, we, how can we, as much as possible, give everybody what they want without impinging on other people's lives in unwanted ways? So if I was mayor for six months, You know, some of it is is very practical. I would definitely commission Lars's scheme. I've been saying for ages, we need more tunnels, uh, because nice as it is to look at the sky, sometimes you just want to get straight through. I'd also commissioned somebody recently, I saw this on Twitter, like all good things, um, uh, actually had a design for a scheme which, again, I've been touting for years, which is that you have a lot of cycle lanes in Perspex tubes uh, on stilts above the city. And when I'm feeling mischievous, I say, so they can be raised above us in the way they think they morally already are. <laughs> uh, but seriously, I've always thought, why do I mix bicycles and cars? It's madness. You're moving at different speeds. Bicycles are really vulnerable. It's bad enough on a motorbike, but at least I move the same speed as the traffic and have a helmet and a massive light and a horn. Um, no big potatoes, just a horn. Um uh, <laughs> So so those infrastructure things, and then also you, it doesn't have to be an either or, because I think there's a, there's a terrible psychological thing that we seem to do in Britain that doesn't happen everywhere else, which is that every road user, every person who wants to move is pitted against everybody else, and cyclists are the enemies of cars, and taxi drivers and van drivers are the enemies of motorcyclists, and you go to France and everybody cooperates, And Cyclists and motorcyclists get out of each other's way. I know people in the audience looking frankly disbelieving. <laughs> <laughs> Honestly, I go over there. I ride my motorbike on holiday. Lorry drivers stop and get out of your way. Cyclists and motorcyclists, you know, make way for the other one, whatever's most sensible, car drivers get out of your way. It's 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 like we were all human beings just trying to get from A to B without annoying each other. It's extraordinary. London should try it sometime. Um, so, with, I mean, the other thing I would actually do, as well as infrastructure stuff, is commission a lot more research and just go and talk to people and say, "Well, what is it you want from transport? What, what is it you, what is it you love about cars? What, what would you swap a car for for some journeys? Would, it, you, know, would you, would you swap it for a flying car? Would you swap it for a monorail? Would you swap it for a vacuum tube that showed you the latest pictures, latest movies, like an aeroplane? So you get a sense of. What is it that people actually want, and are the different ways of providing it? You know, it doesn't have to be a petrol-driven vehicle, Lord knows. Uh, so, yeah, I think a, a, a mixture of more infrastructure and more conversation between human beings that w- wants to know what do people really want, and how can we maximally give everybody what they want without the unwanted side effects. Yeah, but
9: remember Steve Jobs. Steve Jobs said, there's no point in asking the public what they want because before, until they've seen it, they have no idea what it is.
6: No, but you can ask them what it is they love about what mm. they do now. Yeah. I mean, this, is, this is why I genuinely say it would be really interesting to do a survey where instead of saying, you know, would mm. you be tempted by yeah. free fuel, like, you say, would you be tempted by a flying car? Would you be yeah. would you be tempted by teleportation? Yes. You, and then you actually <laughs> right. start to get people thinking, well... I like that idea of teleportation. Actually, no, <laughs> I, I don't want the teleportation because <laughs> I like to see the view on the way, but give me a hypersonic train on stilts yeah. then. Yeah. And then you get a sense of what is it that people... <laughs> You know, what are people's aspirations? So it's a suitably idealistic note to end on.
0: Beautiful, beautiful. Sadly, I'm going to have to draw things to a close. Um, I know lots of people uh, were putting their hands up at the end, sadly, but we couldn't take those. But please do grab panellists over drinks, uh, which will be served out there very soon. Um, I'd just like to finish by thanking, again, Bloomberg for their support and, and the beers outside. <laughs> um, thank you for taking some time out of your day to, to come. And particularly thank you to the panel for such a great debate. Thank you very much.